0: This is the Relic Radio Show, old-time radio entertainment still standing
1: the test of time, from RelicRadio.com.
2: National Broadcasting Company presents, transcribes Sir Lawrence Olivier in Theatre Royal.
3: This
1: is Lawrence Olivier. My choice this week is another story by Honoré de Balzac a little stronger in vain than last week. It is called La Grande Breteche. I shall play the part of the Comte de Meret. The setting is in France, some 150 years ago. So, you've been back to Vendôme, have you? Back to La Grande Breteche, my old home. La Grande Breteche. Yes, it's quite a few years since I left it and started a new life here in Paris.
2: And you've never been back in all those years?
1: No, I've never been back. I never shall go back, you can be sure
2: of that. They told me in Vendôme that the Contest was now living in her chateau at Meray.
1: And so I've been advised by my lawyer. I wish I'd joy there. La Grande Breteche. I have quite an affection for the old house in its way. After all, I was born there, grew up there. I might very well have lived there all my days if things had not turned out the way they did.
2: Well, I don't propose to go to that. Tell me, what does the house look like? Is it in good repair? Oh, I'm afraid it isn't anything but old place, is neglected and overrun wilderness. Garden and drives are overgrown with weeds. The shutters are unpainted and rotten. Eaves choked.
1: Hm. Mm, indeed, I'm surprised to hear that. In a way, though, in a way, I might have expected as much. Neglected, overrun, and empty. Well. Not completely empty, I think.
2: Oh yes, Madame La Comtesse left it empty when she moved. The furniture, carpets, fitting, everything—nearly everything. Oh, she took them with her to Mere, and the story is: No, I still don't understand. You it. don't
1: understand what, my friend?
2: Well, the story is that she burnt it all in the fields there.
1: <laughs> I'm sure she
2: did. But why? You may have had your
1: differences, no doubt. Oh yes, we had our
2: differences. But even so, to burn it all is... As though she couldn't even bear to be reminded.
1: Well, perhaps she couldn't bear to be reminded. Even after all these years. But I hardly expect she is forgotten. Not for a moment. Not for a single second. Sleeping or waking. Now, I can well believe that La Grande Reteche must still hold its memories for her. I can even understand why she left it as soon as she was free to do so.
2: Why is she instructed her lawyer, to leave the
1: place untended, falling into decay and
2: ruin? Yes, I can well understand that as well.
1: I have no particular desire to return there myself for that matter.
2: Well, I'm sorry if I seem to be prying into your affairs, Monsieur Le Comte. I was surprised by what I heard and felt you should be told. And what did you hear
1: that I should be told? What exactly did they tell you at Vendôme?
2: Uh, only what I've told you already, that the place was left neglected by the Comtesse's own orders. I see. So they told you merely that. Nothing else. Nothing about, shall we say, the Spaniards. The Spaniards?
1: Yes. Nothing about the Spanish prisoners.
2: No, I, I'm afraid I don't. I quite... don't
1: quite understand. I see. Well,
2: perhaps I should try and explain the matter to you. Oh, believe me, Monsieur Lecoq, I have no desire to pry into your affairs. I merely inquired because I. Because
1: thought... you thought I should be informed. Exactly. I must thank you for your interest. In fact, I almost feel that I owe you an explanation, my friend.
2: Oh, no, 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 no. I, I'm only no, sorry. Not
1: at all. I feel that I owe you some sort of an explanation, and that as a man of honor you will be the first to appreciate the explanation when I have given it. As a man of honor. After all, honor is not a thing to be trifled with. If our honor is at stake, we must take steps to defend it, I think. Which is merely what I did at La Grande Breteche. Well, that's a matter you must judge for yourself when you've heard the story.
4: We shall hear that story in just a moment when we return to Theatre Royal... But first, we'd like to remind you to join another edition of your Sunday newspaper of the air tomorrow on NBC. That's Weekend, a two-hour session of late news highlights covering everything from feature stories to notes on home, fashion, and sports. You'll hear Weekend's regular notables, Mel Allen with his sports review, Earl Wilson covering the Broadway beat, and top NBC newscasters with informative commentary on all international headlines. As a special page of your Sunday newspaper you'll hear a vital and controversial feature on Women in Government. And this Sunday's Overseas Ticker brings you reporter Joe Newman with the latest word on British progress in jet planes. So be sure to join Weekend tomorrow on NBC. And now, back to tonight's theater royal drama, La Grande Breteche, with Sir Laurence Olivier as the Comte de Meray. It was quite a few years ago
1: now, in the time of the Empire... A time of the war in the peninsula, remember? The Emperor sent some Spanish prisoners of war to Vendome. They were officers and held on parole. One of them was lodged at the inn there, a the Spanish grandee, they tell me, though I never can remember his name. If you wish to learn it, no doubt you will find it written in the register, or perhaps they may even remember him. For they often seem to be talking about him when he was lodging there. <laughs> they say he's rather a handsome <laughs> fellow in his way, for a Spaniard. But Madame Lepage can tell us more than anyone. Can't you, madame?
3: I can only tell you what I know myself that he is a well mannered gentleman and keeps very much to himself. Ah,
2: too bad, madame. Is he lacking in his attentions to you then? And you, the best landlady in all Vendome?
3: He is a gentleman, monsieur, and he keeps to himself. And good oh, looking, we hear. Oh, yes, monsieur. Not on the tall side like monsieur himself, but well made. And he has the most beautiful hands, just like a woman's, and takes a great pride in them. He has as many lotions and brushes for them as most women keep for their hair.
2: A very
1: particular fellow, obviously. Of
3: course, too. He is a very religious man. He reads his breviary like a priest, goes to mass and regularly to all the services. Mm,
1: so I've noticed. He sits close to my chapel. Thank you, Madame Lepard. That will be all for now, I think.
3: Thank you, Monsieur Lecomte. Please ring if you need anything. Good night.
2: Good night, madame. Good night. Ah, so the Spaniard sits near to your chapel every Sunday, does he, Monsieur Lecomte? Yes, I've seen him there these last three or four
1: weeks. As our hostess remarks, he's quite a personable man. On the short side, rather swarthy to our way of thinking. Careful about his dress, though not in a dandified way. You know him, Berni? No, I don't have the pleasure. The general was telling me he fought very bravely. He was captured at the fall of Madrid. Hmm. He was lucky not to be shot, along with all the others. Hmm. No doubt. Perhaps he'll be shot here before he's finished. Oh? Why? Shot by whom? Oh, just shot. As a spy, perhaps. Or trying to break his parole and escape back to Spain. He seems to be a man of rather unusual habits. What sort of habits? Well, our hostess tells me that every evening he climbs the mountain to the castle by himself. Well, few people would bother to climb it with him. What of it? He must be extremely bored out here.
2: Yes, perhaps it reminds him of home. Spain is nearly all mountainous. Or perhaps he's an antiquary. Oh, perhaps he is. Or perhaps he's an athlete. <laughs> <laughs>
1: One of the grooms <coughs> at the inn here was
2: telling me... He went down to bathe his horses
1: the other night. It was rather hot, you may remember. Anyhow, he saw someone swimming in the river, in the moonlight. He seemed to think it was our Spaniard. Swimming in the river, eh? Whereabouts? under the castle? More or less. Not far from uh, your place, as I remember. Down by La Grande bretèche. Really? I must look out for him on my way back tonight.
2: If he stays out as late as this. <laughs> Apparently he does. The landlady got tired of sitting up all hours for him. She gave him a key to let himself in.
1: Well, well, prisoners of war appear to lead interesting lives these days. Ah, Hmm. Just so. Well, gentlemen, I don't have a key to let myself in with, so I must get home before the servants are all in bed.
2: (laughs) Uh, We shall see you at the club on Thursday, Mister. Yes,
1: yes, yes, certainly. In any case, I must be going myself. I'll come with you, Verney. Good night, gentlemen. Good night. Good night. None of that conversation meant very much to me at the time. It was only later on that I began to attach a new significance to it. I don't even believe that the Spaniard and his doings meant very much to Verne either. Though being a lawyer, he was all too ready with his inferences. Well, we had more important things to talk about before long. By the Thursday night, news had reached the club of the Battle of Talavera.
2: Talavera may not have been decisive either way. But it's virtually the end of the British in Portugal. Nonsense. Until we have driven the British into the Tagus as we drove them into the sea at Corona, the peninsula will never be
1: safe for us. Spaniard seems to have a genius for guerrilla fighting. Yeah. Well, once we have the peninsula to ourselves, we shall know how to stamp out a few guerrillas. We gave them a taste of what they could expect at Madrid on May the 3rd. I hardly think the mass shootings at Madrid reflected much credit on us, Monsieur Le Port. Well, they were at least effective. There is a certain amount to be said for ruthlessness when it can serve our turn.
2: <laughs> Two for the game, Monsieur le Comte.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly an easy shot, is it? Well, here goes. <clears throat> Too bad, Monsieur le Comte. As you say, some shots aren't exactly easy. But then, who would shoot a sitting bird? I would, if necessary, as it was in Madrid on May the 3rd. I shouldn't like to have such
2: a shooting on
1: my conscience.
2: Well played, sir. That makes games. Well, Monsieur Comte, you seem to have lost again.
1: So it seems. Well, gentlemen, like the British, perhaps I shall lose every battle except the last. It was later than usual when I left the club that evening. Two hours later than usual. The countryside was silent and deserted as I walked back out of the town to La Grande-Bretèche. It was a brilliant moonlight night, and every detail of the scene was bathed in a silvery glow. The river itself had become a river of silver, that beautiful river Loire which flows below the gardens of La Grande Poetiche. All at once I remembered what Vernet had told me the other evening, how the Spanish prisoner had been seen swimming in the river on just such a moonlit night. Well, this time there was no sign of him. He was far too snugly housed in the bedroom of my wife. Well, I was not to know that. Not just then, but I can well imagine the scene. Yes, I can imagine it all very clearly. My darling.
3: Oh, please. You're trembling. I feel afraid.
1: Afraid, my darling. Afraid of me.
3: Oh, no. Afraid for you, my poor dear. Afraid when I wonder what is to become of us both.
1: We will go away from here. You must come with me back to Spain. There we shall be safe. Well, one of these days...
3: Oh, my darling. What have you done to me? I must be mad sitting here listening to you. I must be mad. My darling. What do you think about when you are alone? I think of you swimming the river each night to come and see me. And I pray for you.
1: Please pray for me. Always. Look, I have brought you a little gift. This crucifix. <gasps> Pray for me every evening before it.
3: I will. Oh, how beautiful it is. Ebony and silver. Yes. I will hang it here over the fireplace, where I shall see it every morning when I waken.
1: And what of your husband? Won't he wonder where it came from?
3: My husband never comes to this room. When he gets back from his club, he asks my maid, Rosalie, whether I have retired. She tells him that I have, and he goes up to his own room.
2: He will hardly
5: miss you. When we have gone.
3: Oh, my darling. I am terribly afraid. When I think of what you plan for us... There is nothing to fear.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, my friend. That is what I suppose the scene must have been like. But nearly as I can imagine it. Pretty scene, eh? Perfect little idyll of love. Only well, this particular night, you remember that I was two hours late. This particular night, Rosalie was not there to meet me. And I took it into my head to see how my lady that contested. I can almost imagine another little scene as well.
3: Listen. What? It's my husband. No. Oh, quickly. Quickly, he's coming to see me. No, no, not that way. Here, the closet. No,
5: no. Let me stay here and have it out oh, with you. Oh, no,
3: I beg you, please. Please, come in here quickly. Come in.
1: Good evening, madame.
3: Good evening. It's late. I was not expecting you. You have only just got home? You look strange. Is something the matter?
1: Madame, there is someone in your closet.
2: In a moment, we continue. Theatre Royal with Sir Lawrence Olivier.
4: We'd like to take just a moment to remind you of the parade of good listening tomorrow on NBC. When famed maestro Arturo Toscanini returns to the podium to conduct another brilliant NBC symphony concert from Carnegie Hall. Carlton Cooley, guest violinist, appears on tomorrow's fine concert as Arturo Toscanini offers a program of music by Wagner and Berlioz. And remember that Sunday means top dramatic entertainment on NBC when brilliant actors Frederick March and Florence Eldridge share the spotlight in There Shall Be No Night on another great NBC star playhouse. In The Marriage... You'll enjoy another fine comedy session with that delightful husband-wife acting team, Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy. Tomorrow, Ben and Liz Marriott find themselves involved in an endless sightseeing merry-go-round as an out-of-town visitor accepts an age-old invitation. Later tomorrow, there's high western adventure on Six Shooter when popular Jimmy Stewart stars as fast-shooting, slow-talking Britt Ponsett. Hear how Britt aids the new sheriff of Dawson County in a search for his long-lost father on tomorrow's six-shooter drama. Listen for another dramatic episode of Stroke of Fate, the exciting drama of how a single event may have altered the entire course of the nation and the world. Try to imagine what might have happened if the French had won the crucial Battle of Quebec back in 1759. You'll enjoy hearing how this stroke of fate may have altered our struggle for independence. Movie fans will want to join MC Jimmy Wallington for personal answers to your queries about screen favorites on the popular Ask Hollywood show. Then you and your family will enjoy NBC's For Better Living program when a host of distinguished panelists offer helpful ideas on how you may better your community life. And now we continue Theatre Royal with Sir Lawrence Olivier.
2: Madame, there is
1: someone in your closet. No, monsieur. You will pardon me if I take the liberty of making sure.
3: Before you do that, I hope you realize that if you do look... Yes? That if you look and find no one there, that all will be over between us, monsieur.
1: Very well, Josephine. I will not look in the closet. I can see that whatever I found or did not find, it would come between us ever after.
3: So oh, you believe me?
1: I believe in your immortal soul. I believe that you would not commit a mortal sin to save yourself from death or that you would willfully endanger your salvation.
3: But, monsieur,
1: I... Here is a crucifix. Swear to me on this crucifix before God that there is no one in that closet and I will believe you. I shall not open the door. I swear it. Louder. Repeat after me. I swear before almighty God that there is no one in that closet.
3: I swear before almighty God that there is no one in that closet.
1: So, I believe you, there is no one in the closet. I must obviously have been mistaken when I thought that I heard voices and the door of the closet closing. I don't remember seeing this crucifix before. Ebony and silver, very beautiful. Where did you come by it?
3: I bought it at Du In Vendôme. I think that he got it from a Spanish monk, uh, one of the Spanish prisoners that were lodged in the town last winter.
1: Where lodged in the town?
3: I believe that they have all been transferred somewhere to the south.
1: I believe that they have, most of them. Excuse me if I ring for your maid.
3: Do you wish for something? I do. You you rang, madame? Monsieur le Comte rang, Rosalie. Yes, monsieur.
1: Rosalie. I understand that you have a mind to get married. I hear that you've even found yourself a husband, Grand Flo, the stone cutter. Well,
3: well, yes, monsieur. Yes, and uh, I
1: believe that you have told him that you will marry him only after he has set himself up as a master mason. Is that right?
3: Yes, monsieur.
1: You see... Yes, uh, you yes, you yes Listen to me, please. I want you to go and call Grand Flo. I want you to tell him to come here at once and to bring his trowel and other tools here with him.
3: Yes, monsieur. Yes, monsieur.
1: It's rather late. Yes, yeah, I'm perfectly able to tell the time. I want you to be careful not to waken anyone else in the cottage, but Grenfell himself. And you must tell no one, absolutely no one, that I have sent for him. If he does as I tell him, and you do as I say, I will see that he has enough money to satisfy both of you. Oh, but, monsieur, what is and it? Do you wish to say something? No. Very well, Rosalie. Is that quite clear? You are not to mention this to anyone at all,
3: or... I, I understand, monsieur.
1: Yes, good. Here is my key. I shall expect Gonflot with his trowel and his tools within the hour. You may go. Yes,
3: monsieur. Monsieur, I do not understand.
1: Indeed? I should have thought it was plain enough. The door to your closet has been the occasion of an entirely groundless suspicion on my part. I propose to make sure that it can never be so again. But you... As you know, there is a quantity of bricks and plaster down in the garden. I ordered it for extending the wall beyond the stable's Well. That is what gave me the idea.
3: As you wish, monsieur.
1: I'm sure that you must agree with me. We must never again let a simple door come between us. Come in. Ah, Gorenflot. I have a little job for you. I know it's rather late, but you must pardon my whims. I intend to pay you quite generously. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, Gorenflot, I want you to bring up... Enough stone and plaster from the courtyard to wall up the door of this closet for me. It can be done by morning, I think.
2: Yes, monsieur, I think that can be done. Yes, good. Then start right away.
1: Have I your permission, madame, to ask Rosalie's assistance? Of course.
3: Rosalie, go and help the mason.
1: After all, it takes quite a number of bricks to wall up the door of a closet. Needless to say... I remained in the room with my wife while preparations for the work were being made. It was a source of some amusement to me, the efforts she made to communicate with Rosalie. I'm sure she managed to do so with looks, if not with words. I was under no illusions as to the fact that Rosalie knew exactly who was behind that closet door. I had no illusions myself, or, of course, I would have had none had I not heard the Countess swear that the closet was actually empty. I forgot to tell you why I was so late home tonight, madame.
3: It was later than usual, I presume, that you had gone up to bed.
1: Hmm, an unusually interesting discussion of the club. Perhaps you've already heard of our victory at Talavera, if we can really call it a victory. I have not heard. No yet. The British have been turned back in their tracks. As I said myself, it can hardly rank as a second corona, but at least it has put a stop to the British I plans heard in nothing. Portugal. Ah, we were discussing the possible outcome of the battle over a game of billiards. I'm afraid that I did not convince them all of my point of view. I'm sorry. Mm, it seems to me that if Napoleon is to consolidate the ground one, we'll have to take steps to stamp out disaffection among the Spanish people. Am I boring you? I'm
3: sorry. I, I was thinking of something
1: else. Mm. Uh, the Spaniard is a wily customer, as our troops found out at Saragossa. I think that we shall have to teach him a stern lesson.
3: I'm sure you're right, monsieur. Yes,
1: I'm sure that I am. Well, Donoflu? How's the work getting along?
2: Uh, It will be finished before much longer, monsieur.
1: Good. When the bricks are laid, I want the wall plastered over from floor to ceiling. Uh, Yes,
2: monsieur.
1: I wonder whether I've not been neglecting you these last few months, Josephine. After your illness, we agreed that it was better that we should keep to our own rooms. You must often have felt lonely.
3: I have often felt lonely, monsieur. I'm
1: sorry. Now that you're well again, you are well again, I think. Yes, monsieur. Mm. A little pale, perhaps. That's probably the lateness of the hour. I must apologize for this disturbance. Uh, still, I see that you've taken the trouble to dress most prettily and flattered by such trouble.
3: I'm glad, monsieur.
1: In fact, I propose to spend what is left of the night in your company, madame.
2: Uh, monsieur, the wall is finished.
1: Good. Then plaster it over and make amends. When the work was done, I gave my orders to the man. He was not to leave La Grande Bretche until I had spoken to him the following morning. As for Rosalie, she was to tell him nothing of what she thought or of what she believed. For myself, I shared her room with the Comtesse. I fancy that night of us slept very well. We? Pleasant morning, madame. Will you wear the same dress for me that you wore last night? If you
3: wish, monsieur. Mm,
1: a little closer in here, I think. Let me open the window. <coughs> I have to settle last night's little business with Gorenflot, and then must go into the town... I have to arrange for a passport with the mayor. i would forgotten that. Uh, perhaps you'd ring for Rosalie.
3: Certainly.
1: Do uh, by the way, uh, your crucifix. I'll take it with me, if I may. I should like to order another one for myself. I think you said that you bought it from Duvivier? Yes. Good. Then allow me, won't you? A charming piece of workmanship.
3: Madame Ryan?
1: Uh, Rosalie, tell Gorenflot that I wish to speak to him. He stayed on here, as I told him? Yes, monsieur. Good. Then have my horse saddled for me. I have to ride into the town. I shall see Gonflo in the library. Yes,
5: yes,
1: yes. Gonflo, Monsieur, I am going into the town to get you a passport. I will also give you six thousand francs. You are to go immediately to Paris, where I will follow you in a little while. There, I will arrange for you to be paid a further 6,000 francs at the end of 10 years, provided that you leave France and do not return before that time. As for Rosalie, I understand that you wish to marry her. Yes, Yes, monsieur. Yes, very well. I shall give her a dowry of 10,000 francs, on condition that you take her abroad with you and both keep silence about the work that you did for me last night. Silence. Do you understand? Yes, monsieur. Then you will do as I say. After I've obtained your passport, you will go at once to Paris. I'll give you an address where you will wait for me. Uh, yes, yes. Further details I will arrange with you through my Paris lawyers. You agree to my terms. Yes, monsieur. Good. Sir. Then I will get you a seat on the Paris coach. Meanwhile, you will mention this to nobody but to Rosalie.
2: Yes, monsieur. I understand.
1: Yes. <laughs> my horse was waiting at the door, and I rode off into Vendôme. That is to say, I rode off towards Vendôme. When I was out of the drive and out of sight of the house, I stopped my horse and dismounted. I tethered her to the fence and made my way back towards the house by the pathway through the orchard. Once again, I could well imagine a scene. A scene that was taking place back there in La Grande Bretche. I was curious to see whether I had imagined it correctly.
3: Oh, Who is it? Help me! Quickly! Oh, quickly, he must be suffocating. Oh, madame, he will be all right, I'm sure. Bagos! Bagos, it's I! Answer me! Oh, he's still alive. Oh, quickly! We can break a hole through the wall, build up the bricks again and re your innocent one. Help me prise out a brick. Oh, quickly! Quickly!
5: <laughs>
3: Maybe I can help you, madame. <laughs> put on the bed. I am well. <laughs>
1: Very well, Rosalie. You may leave us.
3: Oh, Monsieur, Monsieur, For pit is Monsieur. I beg you. You swore upon
1: the cross that there was no one there.
3: The pit is deep, Monsieur. Begum, begum, begum.
1: You swore upon the cross that there was no one there. For 20 days, I never left the contessa's side, for she was dangerously ill. For 20 days, I never left her room. During that time, two items of news were brought to me. Some clothes were found by the riverside, hidden among the bushes upon the opposite bank. And the Spanish prisoner of war, lodged at the inn on parole, had vanished. He was never heard of again. Now, well, my friend, that is the story that I have never told anyone before. It is an old story, but it may explain to you why La Grande Breteche is deserted and neglected. Neglected, yes. Yes, but not entirely empty. This is Laurence Olivier again. I would like to express my thanks to our cast, which has included this week Elizabeth Kentish, who played the part of the Contest de Mary, and also Stephen Jack, Keith Pyatt, Mervyn John, Paul Whitson-Jones, Sia Wells, and Joan Lord. And so, until next week, when, once again, I hope to have the pleasure of your company, au revoir, and thank you.
2: Lawrence Olivier starred in today's transcribed program. The script was by Derek Tatmore. The music was under the direction of Sidney Tort. Theater Royal is an NBC presentation produced and directed by Harry Allen Towers.
6: A word of advice from your National Safety Council. If you're driving this weekend, drive carefully. The life you save may be your own. Tonight, hear Hollywood Story on the NBC
7: Radio Network. Signal gasoline. Let every traffic signal remind you, you do go farther with signal gasoline. Yes, you do go farther with signal Signal Oil Company and your neighborhood signal dealer bring you another curious story by The Whistler. Tonight, The Return of the Innocent.
8: I am The Whistler. And I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange secrets hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. It's almost midnight behind the dark, cold walls of the state penitentiary. The warden and the chaplain, Father Maloney, have just about finished the last of a series of weekly talks with Phil Carter, a series of Saturday night suppers which have been occurring for ten years. This is Phil Carter's last night as a prisoner, and he listens to the chaplain praise the many good things Phil has done for the men inside these walls.
5: And, two, it's amazing, Phil. You've raised the morale of the men here by 50% increase the quality of the food and the quantity without a raise in budget from the state. Thank you, Father Maloney. You've instituted recreational and vocational reforms that have endeared you to every man in the place. The warden? Yes, indeed, Father. Phil is a wizard with figures, an economic wizard. Everything he did, he figured out first on a piece of paper. Phil, I had a talk with the governor today. I don't know what you're planning to do, but, well, if you'd like to stay on here we can make it more interesting. Stay
6: on, Warden. Don't you think 15 years here has been enough?
5: Yes, I know what you mean. I've spent 20 years behind these walls myself. Well, if you decide after you look around outside that you want to come back, there's a good salary waiting for you, Phil. What are your plans, my boy? Why, Father? Why do you ask that? You, the Warden and I have been talking about you for a long time now. We're convinced that You came here an innocent man. We believe in you. No man with your attributes, your character, could be a thief. A juggler of books and accounts. That's right, Phil. We think you were framed. But we're uh, worried about your leaving. We feel, well, that you might get yourself into some some real trouble. And come back to us in a way we we wouldn't like to see. And
6: you're offering me this permanent job with the state because you think I've figured out who railroaded me and will seek revenge on that person. Well, now we yeah. Well, I have figured it out. I know now who really did it. I know who was responsible for my spending 15 years here. But gentlemen, on my word of honor, I won't touch a hair of that person's head. When I get tired of roaming around, I may accept your offer as director of prison economy, but I doubt it. I've had enough of prison for one lifetime.
5: Midnight, Phil. You're a free man. The car's waiting to take you to the station. Thanks. Good night, gentlemen.
6: And please don't worry about me. All my intentions are of the best.
7: Whistler fans, can you answer this question? Who brings you the Whistler? I hope you said Signal Oil Company, because we of the cast have a little favor we hope you'll do for us. You see, radio surveys show that the Whistler has been getting more and more popular each week until today. No program on the West Coast has more listeners than the Whistler. Now, that's mighty good news. We hope it means you're really enjoying this program. If so, then as a favor to us, won't you please tell your neighborhood signal dealer that you enjoy the Whistler? Probably you already know your signal dealer. If not, my bet is you'll agree he's a good man to know. Because being in business for himself, he does the most conscientious job he can in servicing cars. And today, with his thorough experience, plus finer quality signal products, he's doing a great job helping today's aging cars run better and last longer. Yes, and he'll be mighty pleased to know you enjoy the program he's bringing you. So won't you drop in this week and tell your signal dealer you enjoy The Whistler? He'll appreciate it, and we of the cast will appreciate your favor. And now, The Whistler.
8: So you know now, Phil Carter, who the person is who caused you to spend 15 years in prison for something you did not do. It's Jeff Gilroy, isn't it? You and Jeff Gilroy were junior members of your brother Alan Carter's firm. You and Jeff Gilroy kept the books, but you were nominally the head bookkeeper. So the shortages and the juggling pointed to you, Phil, didn't they? Now Jeff is dominating the business and your brother as well. And soon, Alan will be out on the street. Nothing can be proved against Jeff. There will be no evidence after 15 years. Jeff has undoubtedly seen to that. You might as well forget it. Just drop into the office and see your brother, Alan.
3: Gilroy and Carter? No, Mr. Gilroy is not in. Gilroy and Carter? No, Mr. Carter is not in at the moment. He'll be back in half an hour. Oh,
6: Pardon me, miss. Mr. Carter not in on Mr. Gilroy? No.
3: Mr. Carter is out for a while, and Mr. Gilroy has gone to see his doctor. Oh?
6: Isn't Mr. Gilroy feeling well?
3: No. Mr. Gilroy has had a number of attacks lately, and he's been visiting the doctor several times. Uh, Just who are you?
6: Why, I'm Mr. Jones. I had an appointment with him.
8: Well, he never returns to the office when he goes to the doctor's.
6: I presume he's gone to Dr.... what is his name? Dr.... Dr. Benton. Yes. Dr. Benton. He's in the... Uh... In
3: the Hellman building. He's a specialist, I think.
6: Specialist? Oh, of course. Dr. Benton, in the Hellman building. I'll try to catch him there.
3: Well, if you care to see Mr. Allen Carter, he'll be back in a short while. No,
6: thank you. If I miss Mr. Gilroy, I'll come back in the morning. Good day.
8: So, Jeff Gilroy is not well, huh? huh? Visiting a specialist. And what kind of a specialist? The telephone directory lists Dr. Benton as a cardiologist. A heart specialist? So you stand staring for a few moments, Phil. Something is going through your mind. What is it? A few minutes later, you're standing in the third floor hall of the Hellman building. A man comes out of Dr. Benton's office. It's Jeff Gilroy. Yes, there he is, Phil, a man you hate. Jeff Gilroy, puffy and fat from too much high living. But you turn aside. He doesn't see you as he steps into the elevator and disappears. Then another minute or so, and you, Phil Carter, are standing in Dr. Benton's consultation room. Down there, Mr. Gilroy. Gilroy?
6: Well, that's strange. You mean the Gilroy? Well, I was told my brother Jeff had come here. I have just arrived in town, I haven't seen him for 15 years or more. They said at his office that he was here.
7: Yes, he left just a few minutes ago. Oh?
6: Well, I'm quite disturbed about the sign on your door. Are you a heart specialist, doctor? I am. There's never been anyone in our family afflicted with heart trouble. How serious
7: is it? Jeff Gilroy is in a bad condition. Myocarditis. Inflammation of the heart muscle. What can be done about it? He's a stubborn man. Not that anything can be done about it. His, His blood pressure is most alarming. He... Works too much and drinks too much. And if he doesn't get away from his office and take a rest very soon, he'll go out like a light. And he's overweight, too.
6: You mean he's liable to drop dead?
7: Yes, yes. A few minutes ago, I was able to impress him sufficiently so that he promised to take it easier. Oh, thanks, Doctor.
6: I'll see if there's something I can do about that. Good afternoon. <laughs>
8: Well, there's a sardonic smile on your lips as you leave the doctor's. This is what might be called poetic justice, isn't it, Phil? Jeff Gilroy liable to drop dead at any moment. It's more than you'd hope for, but can you leave it at that, Phil? After all the hours of hating him, can you leave it at that? No. Phil Carter steps into a telephone booth and makes a call. A call to Jeff Gilroy's home. Just a short talk with old David the butler. But it'll be enough, won't it, Phil? You'd like to be there when Jeff arrives, wouldn't you?
5: Good evening, Mr. Gilroy.
0: How do you feel? Oh, I don't know, David. I always seem to feel worse when I visit that specialist, thanks. All he does is try to scare me to thinking I'm falling apart mentally and physically.
5: Well, you have had several bad attacks lately, sir. Oh, boss, you're as bad as that specialist. Forget it. Anybody call? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, there was a gentleman from the insurance company called this afternoon. Insurance company? What insurance company? I don't know, sir. He said the office informed him you'd gone home for the
9: afternoon. Well,
5: what did he want? He wanted to tell you that his company couldn't issue that policy on your life. What? On my life? I haven't applied for a policy. He said to tell you that 100000 was a large policy, and they'd found it necessary to check up on your condition and learned that you were much too bad a risk because of your heart condition. Who was this man? Did he tell you? Well, yes, he, he told me... And he told me the name of his company, but I can't remember either, sir. I thought you'd know
0: about it. Oh, confound you, David. You're an old fool. I should have gotten rid of you years ago. Uh, Sorry, sir. $100,000 policy, eh? And they checked on my condition. Give me that phone.
6: Hello?
0: Dr. Benton speaking. Doctor, this is Jeffrey Gilroy. Just what do you mean by shooting your mouth off to other people about my so-called heart condition? What? Why, I don't understand. Have you told my partner, Alan Carter, about my condition?
7: I have never met your partner. I've told no one except your brother this
0: afternoon. My brother? I never had a brother. That man was an investigator from an insurance company.
7: Oh, oh, well, uh, I'm sorry about that. But try to get yourself under control, Mr. Gilroy. I've warned you about
0: the results of excitement. Yes, all right, goodbye. Well, how do you like that? Now, who would want to take out a $100,000 policy on... Except... Hmm. Right. My partner, Alan Carter. Hello? Alan, you get over to my place immediately. What? What? Who is this? It's Jeff Gilroy, your partner. Get over here, now.
9: Well, Alan, what delayed you? Delayed me, Jeff. I couldn't have come any faster.
0: Well... What's wrong with you? Your face is red as fire. Why no, shouldn't it be? What do you mean by trying to take out an insurance policy on my life without consulting me? What
9: kind of a scheme have you got up your sleeve? I? An insurance policy? On you? Well, why should I attempt to do anything like that? Did
0: you figure it was an easy way to pick up 100000 Well, I'll tell you this much. I'm going to outlive you. What do you think of that?
9: Jeff, you're absolutely out of your mind. I don't even know what you're talking about. Now, no, take it easy. <laughs> an insurance investigator went to that specialist I've been
0: visiting. The man posed as my brother and got the dope from the doctor that I had heart trouble. Heart trouble? I didn't know that. No? And the insurance agent called here and explained that they couldn't issue a policy on my life. Well,
9: if I took it out or applied for a policy, why would they call you? Wouldn't they call me about that? Huh? Oh. Well, I never thought of that. I I certainly didn't apply for a policy. I know you're in a bad condition, but such a thought never occurred to me. So you think I'm in a bad condition? Well, any fool could see that. You're too stubborn to take a rest. You won't listen to anyone. Not even a specialist.
0: And if you haven't applied for a policy, why did that insurance agent call
9: here? Who was he? What company? Oh,
0: I don't know. That stupid old David can't remember. Jeff, Jeff, you're shaking like a leaf. Come on, man. Buck up. Oh, Alan, I've, I've got the strangest feeling of sort of a
9: premonition. Premonition? Of what? I don't know. I don't know how to express it. Disaster. Disaster? Concerning yourself? Or the business? Myself. And it isn't my heart condition that worries me. Oh, nonsense. You're imagining things, Jeff. Come on, let's go down to the club. We'll mix with some of the boys and try to forget all this. It'll do you good. All right. I'll go. I may even stay at the club for the night. I I
0: don't know why, but I don't want to stay in this place all alone. Are you afraid to be alone, Jeff? I don't know what's come over me, but I'm going to stay at the club. <laughs>
8: Well, Phil Carter, it's too bad you couldn't have been listening in on that scene between your brother Alan and his partner, Jeff Gilroy. You'd have known just how well your plan was developing. But your guess is pretty good, and you're determined to follow it through anyway. You sit across from Jeff's home and watch the two men leave. You follow them to the club, and later you watch Alan leave. Jeff stayed at the club. You found that out. And so you wait until you're sure he's in bed and...
0: Hello. 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 Who is it? Hello. Hello. What? Who? Hello. Hello. Who is it? What do you mean by calling up in the middle of the night? What is all this? Stop it. Stop it. Hello. Hello. Stop it. Do you hear? Stop it. I'm a sick man. You can't do this to me. Stop it. <laughs> For God's sake, what are you doing? Who is this? Who? <laughs> Hello. Hello. Who is this?
9: Hello. Good morning, Jeff. It's Alan. <laughs> what's the matter? Alan? Don't you feel well, Jeff?
0: Alan, I haven't slept a wink all night. Somebody's been calling me, getting me up, and then just laughing until I'm nearly frantic. I don't know what's going on
6: just playing a joke on you. A joke? Or maybe it's just a mistake. Anyway, maybe this is just what you need. What? I'm up at my mountain place. I got one of those terrific sinus attacks about midnight and drove up here during the night. High altitude always helps.
2: Yeah? Uh-huh.
6: Nice and quiet up here, Jeff. i decided to stay a couple of weeks. It's Just what you need.
0: Come on up. But I don't feel like driving, Alan. I'd like to, but I... I know. But I called All right, Alan. All right. I'll leave immediately.
8: Goodbye. It worked, didn't it, Phil? He didn't recognize your voice. You always did talk enough like Alan to fool people if you wanted to, even Jeff. And he's fooled, all right, because he's headed for the Carter Lodge in the mountains where Phil Carter is waiting. Yes, you've arranged quite a reception, haven't you, Phil? With a roaring log fire in the fireplace and everything. Very pleasant for a stormy day like this one. Then you disconnected the telephone, didn't you? So Jeff's rest won't be disturbed. And took a single 38 cartridge from the ammunition box next to the gun rack. So you're all ready when the hired limousine pulls up around 3 o'clock in the afternoon and Jeff is there. But then you don't greet him, do you? No, you let him wander around, calling for Alan and wondering.
5: Alan! Alan, where are you?
8: It takes him several minutes to find the notes you left okay. Gone to the village for supplies. Back in a few hours. Alan. Oh. Jeff walks about nervously for a while, and at last, becoming exhausted, he drops in a chair and falls into a fretful sleep. Two hours pass. Jeff jumps up with a start after searching the place to see if Alan has arrived. And he rushes to the phone. Hello? 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 Hello?
0: Dead as a door.
5: Reach for the shield. Huh?
0: Ben. Ben, what's the matter with you? Put down that rifle.
5: You know me? But I don't know you. I'm the caretaker. I'm Jeff Gilroy. Jeff Gilroy. Jeff Gilroy, eh? I knew a Jeff Gilroy once. The funny thing, though, looked a little like you. I'm the same Jeff Gilroy. You crazy, Ben?
0: Well, now, how did you know my name was Ben? I'm Jeff Gilroy. Now, put up that gun. I'm nervous enough as it is. Where's Mr. Carter? Mr. Carter?
8: Uh,
0: Alan Carter? Certainly. My partner.
5: Why? He's in, um... He's at his office.
0: He's not at his office. He's here. Is he? I ain't seen him. When did he get here, Mr. Gilroy? He called me at 10 o'clock this morning and asked me to come up here. He called from here. Why, how could he do that? Oh.
5: How long has this phone been out of order? ain't out of order. Leastwise, it was not at 12 o'clock noon today. I called Mr. Carter at his office at noon. At, at noon? From this phone? Why, sure. I wanted to know if he was planning to come up here the next three days... I wanted to visit my sister in the village. And and what did he say? Oh, he said he wouldn't be up here for a couple of weeks. Who built that big fire? What? I thought you did. No, I didn't. Well, I gotta run along now. If you want me, I'll be at my cabin a half mile up the mountain. Just up the main road and turn off when you come to the big signal oil station. I see you in the morning. Good night. <laughs>
8: Bill watches Jeff Gilroy's nervous pacing about the room for a while. Then he reconnects the phone wire, slips to the upstairs phone, and calls his brother Alan in the city.
6: Hello? Hello, Alan. Did you get that note suggesting you check over the financial affairs of your company instead of playing so much golf?
9: Yes, I
6: got it. But have you checked on those affairs yet? Yes, I have. Who is this? <laughs> I'm the man you wouldn't believe. Fifteen years ago, I'm the man you prosecuted. I'm your brother, Phil. Phil? What? Where are you? Oh, I'm in town. I've been out a few days. How does it feel to find out you prosecuted the wrong man? <laughs> There's no proof of any irregularity. There was no proof fifteen years ago, Alan. Now I'm going to get the proof myself. How long, Alan? Phil? Phil? <laughs>
8: Bill Carter slips back to the head of the stairs and enjoys himself by watching Jeff Gilroy's increasing tension, his heavy, labored breathing. Jeff is terribly worried. He manages to place more wood on the fire, but tries his best to keep away from the window. About 8.30.
9: Hello. Hello? Jeff, this is Alan. Ellen. where are you? I'm at the Office? Office?
0: Well, he asked me to come up here to the lodge. I've been at the lodge all day. What did you leave for?
9: I haven't been at the lodge for a week or more. But
0: you called me from here this morning.
9: What's the matter with you, Jeff? I just called the club and they told me where you were. Are you out of your mind? I.
0: I don't know, Alan. I... I don't know, but I.
9: I just heard some interesting news, Jeff. My brother Phil was paroled three days ago.
0: Phil? Phil, that's it. That's what's been going on. It's Phil. He's after me.
9: What are you talking about?
0: He hates me. He thinks I had something to do with his prison sentence. Alan, I can't stay here alone. Come and get me. Come and get
9: me, do you hear? Yes, I hear. I'll come. Goodbye. Ellen. Ellen, hello. Hello?
6: Hello, Jeff.
5: Phil. Phil. Don't, don't.
6: Don't what, Jeff?
5: That's
0: a gun in your pocket, I know. Please don't. Jeff,
6: take <laughs> that chair facing the fireplace. Now sit down and try to relax. Or can you relax in your last hour as Jeff?
9: Last hours? Phil? Look, Phil, listen to me. I get down. down. Yes. Yes, there.
6: I'm a sick man, Phil, a sick man. Then you won't
9: mind, perhaps, what's going to happen. This.
6: You're going to sit there, and I'm going to stand here in front of the fire, and you're going to tell me all about it. A confession is sometimes good for one's soul. Confession? What are you talking about? Don't play innocent, Jeff. Not after those 15 years I spent. <laughs> it's too late to play innocent. innocent. Phil... Phil, honestly, I don't
0: know what you're talking about. On the exact stroke of 12, I'm going to put talking a bullet about... through you, Jeff. No. And you
5: know why.
9: No, Phil, no. no you know you can't. Go on, Jeff. Talk. <laughs> you be... Talk.
5: You
6: talk. <sighs> there it is, Jeff. Hmm? It's starting to strike 12. You've only got a few more seconds to start talking. Go on, Jeff. Go on. Tell me all about it. No. Tell me how you sent an innocent man to prison
0: for a crime you committed. No, Phil, no. No, I didn't. You're wrong. Please, Phil, you've
5: got to listen to me. Confession Please? or not, Jeff, you're going to die in a few <laughs> seconds. I've waited 15 years for this. Phil, no. No, Phil. no. did 11.
2: <laughs> Please. 12. I'm least... Now, Jeff. Now. No. 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 <laughs> <laughs>
6: So dead. And not a mark on you, Jeff. I didn't even touch you. Not a hair on your head.
7: But that's not all to tonight's story. The Whistler will return in just a moment with the strange ending of tonight's tale. Meantime, the Office of War Information has asked Signal Oil Company to inform car owners there will be 40% fewer new tires for civilian drivers during April, May, and June than during the past three months. And President Roosevelt has warned that the only way to be sure your car will be kept running is to make your present equipment last. Fortunately, tires can be retreaded more than once if the inner carcass is in sound condition. Small injuries should be repaired promptly before they spread and weaken the tire. The tread must not be worn too thin before retreading. Because surveys show that three out of every four tires today need either some kind of repair or retreading, you will be wise to have your tires thoroughly inspected. Your signal gasoline dealer, being a trained expert at tire care, will not only be glad to inspect your tires, but he's completely equipped for all types of tire repair and retreading. All of the top quality that the name Signal stands for. But most important, don't put off this tire service until your car is laid up. Plan now to make your tires last by having them Signal service this week. And now, back to the Whistler.
8: Phil Carter, you accomplished your purpose, didn't you? You avenged your injustice and still kept your promise to the warden. Jeff Gilroy is dead and you didn't touch a hair on his head. No, you only dropped that 38 cartridge into the fire where it exploded harmlessly. But was it it was enough. Too much for Jeff's heart. It wasn't exactly murder, was it? Except you did know his heart was weak. Another thing, Phil. Didn't it surprise you a little, the fact that Jeff wouldn't confess? Didn't that make you stop and wonder a little? It should have. But then you found that out soon enough. It was just a few minutes after 12. You were just about to leave the lodge when your brother Alan arrived. You were in the hallway and he didn't see you. But he saw Jeff slumped over the chair in front of the fire. And as he walked up, you saw the gun he had in his
9: hand. All right, Jeff. Don't move. Just give it to me quick. What is this that you and Phil are trying to pull? Thought you were pretty smart, didn't you, getting me up here on a trick like this? But I came, but I am ready for you. If you two think you can pin that embezzlement on me after all these years and all the trouble I've taken to cover up, I'll kill you both before I'll admit anything. You can't prove a thing. Neither of you. You hear me? You can't prove a thing on me.
6: Jeff. Jeff! He can't hear you, Alan. He's dead. Huh. Stay where you are. You needn't be afraid of me, Alan. I won't do anything to you. you. You killed him? The coroner's jury will say he
9: died of a heart attack. But you frightened him to death.
6: Yes. But something he didn't do. Something you did. I... Don't worry, Alan. It doesn't matter anymore. For 15 years, I've hated the wrong man. Now there's nothing left. I won't cause you any trouble. You needn't shoot me or worry about me. What do you mean? I'm going back. Back to prison? Yeah. They offered me a job there. I just killed a man. I'm going back. For the rest of my life. It's really where I belong, you know.
7: 9 o'clock, The Whistler will bring you another strange tale. The Whistler is broadcast for your entertainment by the marketers of Signal Gasoline and Motor Oil and fine quality automotive accessories, and by your neighborhood Signal Dealer. This program, directed by George W. Allen, with story by J. Donald Wilson, music by Wilbur Hatch, is transmitted to our troops overseas by the Armed Forces Radio Service. This is Marvin Miller speaking... suggesting you let every traffic signal remind you you do go farther with signal gasoline. Yes, you do go farther with signal. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.